If you were to go to Germany and go to a place called Wartburg Castle, and you were to walk up a winding staircase to a small bedroom with a small window, and you were to look closely at the wall there, you would see where a inkwell had been shattered and ink stained the wall. It was in this room in the year 1521 that Martin Luther hurled an inkwell at Satan. Now, Martin Luther, um, who I talk about a lot because he, I, I love Martin Luther, as uh, one of the men responsible for the Great Reformation that happened in the 15 and 1600s. Martin Luther lived at a time in which the Roman Catholic Church had great political and social power and a time in which the church was using that power in ways that were unbiblical and unjust. And Martin Luther spoke out against it. In fact, he went up to a church door in Wittenberg and nailed 95 theses, 95 things that he saw the church doing that went against what God's word said. And because of his boldness, because of his speaking out, he was excommunicated. But not only that, he had to go into hiding because his life was being threatened. So it was while he was in hiding, it was while he was trying to escape uh, those who wanted to kill him, that he was residing in Wartburg Castle. And he was using an an alias. His alias was Knight George, um, which coincidentally is John Parker's gamer tag on Xbox. So so if you're ever on there and you see that name, that's John. Um, So anyway, so... So Martin Luther's in this castle, and he's trying to avoid being attacked, and yet it's in this place that he came face to face with the devil himself. Now, uh, I imagine uh, that if you brought a friend here tonight who doesn't go to church, um, you are feeling very uncomfortable because you're thinking, are we, are we really going to be talking about devils and demons and those kinds of things tonight? Um, yes, yes, we are, uh, because that's what Paul chooses to talk about at the end of this letter to the Ephesians. We've been studying this letter all summer and we get to the end of the letter and Paul begins to talk about things that are happening in the spiritual realm. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're not sure what you think about Christianity, if church is new to you and this just seems crazy, um, I just want to say to you, you're here. So you might as well make the most of it, right? And aren't you a little bit interested in what the Bible, what Christians believe about the spiritual realm? So I encourage you, even if it feels a little like this is weird, uh, just, just be open to listen and maybe, uh, maybe you'll get something out of this. So we're going to look together at what Paul says in the end of this letter in Ephesians 6, and I'm going to start reading in the 10th verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. Paul ends this letter by saying that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. But our struggle is really taking place in the spiritual realm. He ends this letter by saying that that what's really going on around us, we can't see with the naked eye. It's just like uh, in the show Stranger Things. There's this upside down world that can't be seen, but if we pay attention, we can sense it. Now, I don't play Pokemon Go, and it's not because I'm against it, but because I know it will take over my life. I know that it would completely control me. I know that walking around knowing that there are all these things happening around me, that there, there, there's all these little creatures around me that I can't see unless I check my phone, would constantly have me checking my phone. Like right now, like, is there a Pikachu by me? I know some of you are playing it because we're a gym and you're trying to get control. So is there, like, I'm really curious, like, is there a Pikachu by me? Like, that is how I would walk around all the time, worried and trying to think about, like, what's really happening that I'm not aware of right now. Now, as dumb as that may sound and as silly as that illustration is, I do think that Pokemon Go and Stranger Things help us get our imaginations around the reality that Paul is speaking about here. Paul, um... Paul is showing us that there is more going on than meets the eye. Uh, a couple weeks ago, after the, the sermon on marriage, I had a man come up to me uh, and share with me that he and his wife had, had recently gotten separated. Uh, in fact, uh, after that sermon, I had several people come forward and tell me a, a similar situation, a similar story. And, and I tell you that just to say, if that's you... Um, you're not alone, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of people struggling like that, and I, and I want you not to feel completely isolated in that struggle. But, but this man um, was telling me uh, that uh, he, because of some circumstances at his work, got an opportunity, uh, kind of a, uh, got kind of thrust into the public eye for a short period of time, and he used that opportunity, decided to use that opportunity to share his faith. And he said it was really after that that his marriage began to fall apart. And he said, he said to me, he said, I'm, I'm really more of like a science guy. And the idea of spiritual warfare has always seemed a little bit ridiculous to me. But he said, Zach, I, that's what it feels like. It feels like ever since I, I shared my faith publicly that I've been under attack. Going back to the Martin Luther story... Um, It's interesting that this, and Martin Luther would write about this experience a whole lot. Um, This was his greatest spiritual attack throughout his whole life. And it wasn't a time in which he was running away from God. And there were times in his life when he was running away from God. And it wasn't a time in which he was pursuing an evil path. In fact, he was taking this time of forced solitude, this time of hiding, 
to translate the New Testament from the ancient Greek into German, uh, the common language of, of the people that he was around. He, he was trying to do something that, that many people hadn't done before. I mean, the, these people had to rely completely on what the priest said, the Bible said. And here was Martin Luther working to try to get them God's word in their own language so that they could read it and understand it and discover some things for themselves. So why did the attack come then? Well, I think it's the reason why Paul waits until the end of this letter to address spiritual warfare. He doesn't start off the letter by saying um, there's a battle for your soul and you need to choose Jesus. He ends the letter by saying, if you choose Jesus, you are entering a battle. He ends this letter by saying Christianity is risky. If what I've said to you in this letter, if what I've told you about what Jesus has done for you, that that the God of the universe put on flesh and came and lived the perfect life, the life that you were supposed to live so that he could die in your place. And he's been resurrected from life, promising that if you believe in him, you can have new life. If you've bought into that, if you believe that and you begin to try to live in the reality of that, you're entering into a battle. A fight will begin and it's risky. Now, to the teenagers here, uh, the teenagers, I want you to hear that very clearly. Christianity is risky. It's not safe. And I'm sorry if we adult Christians have given you or portrayed to you a Christianity that's lame or boring or safe, where you think the riskiest thing you can do involves sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and rock and roll isn't bad. It just sounds good to say that. So rock and roll is fine. But... But I want you to know following Jesus is risky. It takes tremendous bravery to lay down your life for your friends. It takes tremendous bravery to tell the truth about yourself, to not use a filter, to just share who you are. It takes tremendous bravery to believe that God's plan for you is far greater than your potential. A verse we looked at a number of weeks ago, kind of in the, in the very middle of Ephesians, a, a verse says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What he's saying there is he's saying that God has a plan for us, a plan for you and a plan for me that we can accomplish on our own. That is so beyond what we could even imagine. Our wildest dreams are infinitely smaller than his plans. And it's risky to believe that. It's risky to actually go out and try to, try to do something. Paul, this whole letter has been inviting us into this kind of risky, seemingly impossible task. And then here at the very end of the letter, he says, And I'm telling you that what I'm inviting you into is a fight. Christianity is a fighting religion. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, says this, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and taste and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up in his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insist very loudly on our putting them right again. That's our cause. To join God as he puts things right again. 
Our cause is to be about the things that Jesus is about. And it's risky and it requires a tremendous amount of bravery and it's a fight. So we know the goal. Like we have, we have the picture in mind. We know what it is we're fighting for. But who is it that we're fighting? How are we supposed to fight? And where do we find victory? That's what I want us to look at today. Who we're fighting how we know how to fight, and where we look for the victory. But first, we have to start with, do you know you're in a fight? Do you know? Do you feel it? Like my, my, my friend who came up, whose marriage is falling apart, do you, do you know what that feels like? Do you know what it feels like to feel the weight of an attack? A preacher I heard uh, one time, he, he said, uh, if, you ever, if you never see any fight in your religion, you probably aren't a Christian. It's probably some other religion that you're a part of. In other words, if you think that you've said yes to who Jesus is, to the Jesus question, and your life all of a sudden becomes breezy and easy all the time, you might want to go back and make sure that you indeed had said yes to Jesus. That you had said yes to Jesus who, who says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and pick up their cross daily. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. So do you remember when you first became a Christian? You remember like the joy and the, and the freedom you felt? The, this realization that I, I'm a new man. I'm a, I'm a new woman. I, I've been made new. And, and you start making all kinds of promises like you're going to leave your old life behind and, and you're going to fight against laziness and you're going to get up every day and you're going to pray and you're going to read your Bible and you're going to start serving people like Jesus did. But do you also remember the day you realized it was a lot harder than you thought? Do you remember the first time uh, you realized you hadn't read your Bible and in a day or, or two or a week? Remember the first time you realized uh, uh, that you were really tired and, and you, you started kind of avoiding service opportunities? You started avoiding needy people? Do you remember the first time you, you felt embarrassed to talk about Jesus and what he had done in your life? Do you remember the first time you lied to your, your group of friends of, about your victory over a particular sin? Why is it so much harder than we thought? Because it's a fight. But who are we fighting? It's not Hillary Clinton, and it's not Donald Trump. It's not the abortion doctor, or the pornographer, or the atheist. Jesus loves them. Jesus wants them to know him. Jesus wants their hearts to break for the things that break his heart. You've never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. Our real enemy is never other people. Other people are never our enemy. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, Put on the whole armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says our enemy, our true enemy, is the devil. And our battle, our fight takes place in the spiritual realm. C.S. Lewis has a, a great book called The Screwtape Letters. And um, if you've never read it, 
it's a great one, and I, I encourage you to read it. But it's, it's a little book, and it's this very creative and, and profound um, fictionalized story of, uh, of these two demons. And one is a, a kind of a novice demon. He's kind of just coming into like his role as a demon. And the other one's been doing it for a long time. And the book is a series of letters back and forth between this junior demon and this senior demon. And one of the first things the senior demon, his name's Screwtape, tells his protege named Wormwood is this. He says, if, if the human that you're assigned to begins to begin to feel a sense of a battle happening, if he begins to sense what's actually happening in the spiritual realm, he says, do this. He says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. And that works, doesn't it? I mean, when I hear the word devil, I immediately think of Gary Marshall and Hocus Pocus, which I know is like a very obscure reference, and you probably, that probably doesn't come into your mind. But that just shows you, like when I hear devil, like I immediately picture this old man dressed up like a devil. What, do you, what, do you, what comes to mind? When you hear the word devil, it's probably not the actual enemy that the Bible speaks about. A friend asked me the other day if Satan can hear our thoughts. And she was asking me because she said, if he can't hear my thoughts, if, if, if Satan is limited in that way, why would I ever confess my sins to others? Besides the fact that the Bible clearly says we should. In James 5.16, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But I got where she was coming from. She was saying, if, if Satan is limited and can't know our thoughts, but he can hear our confessions, why in the world would we supply him with more ammunition? Now, I thought it was a great question, and I didn't really have a good answer. And so I, I tried to do some research. I tried to study the scriptures. And, and it was, I, I really couldn't come up with, it, with an excellent answer to what she was saying. But what I discovered in that little exercise was that Satan is not an evil version of God. They are not some equal opposing forces. Satan is a created and limited being. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. But he is definitely good at knowing how to attack us, especially where it hurts the most. Now... I'm no genius at mathematics. Um, in fact, when I was in college, I took math for liberal arts one and two for my two math courses. Um, but even with my limited mathematical knowledge, if I spent 100 years studying math, I think I'd be pretty good at it, right? I think if I spent 1,000 years studying math and, and, I, and I read all the learned theories, that I could be Einstein. Imagine if I had 10,000 years. If, if we had 10,000 years to study something, every single one of us could be a great philosopher or psychologist or theologian. Satan has had a multiple millennia to study and master the human behavior. So when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. So my response to my friend was, uh, your silence on your struggles or your sins will not spare you Satan's attack. Us humans are way too predictable for him. And then I said, maybe remaining silent to keep Satan at bay is his most clever attack. 
some of you in this room don't really have any fight left. And it's not good news to hear that what you've been invited into in Christianity is a fighting religion. You're beat. You're worn out. You don't want to do it anymore. And I want to tell you, first of all, you're not alone. And you need to tell somebody. You need to invite others into that. Because one of the reasons community is so important and one of the reasons we make it such an important focus here at Summit is because we know that sometimes you can't fight and you need other people to fight on your behalf. But that means other people have to know. That means you have to share. We often say around here, your story told truthfully is good news for others. But also your story told truthfully is good for you. By telling your story truthfully in Christ-centered community, you get to hear the good news. You get to hear, yes, yeah, yeah, maybe you're a lot worse than you thought you were. And yes, maybe Jesus really did have to come and die for your sins. But yes, you are so much more loved and adored than you ever dared imagine because he wanted to do it. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. And you see, it's after we get that. It's after we realize that it's all grace. That our salvation is not because we've done enough, because we've been good enough. It's all because of this like amazing grace of God that we begin to feel the real fight. Because you see, when we're spiritually dead, when we're not alive spiritually, Satan can afford to ignore us for we don't count for anything to him. But if we're alive, if we're, if we're celebrating that freedom of being loved unconditionally, if we're, if we're relishing the grace of God, that's when we become a target. I remember as a kid growing up, I was a really good kid, grew up Christian home, and on the outside you would think I was all about what Jesus was about, and I wasn't. I was really about myself and, and how I looked and the approval of others, and, and also out of a little bit of fear, like knowing that if something happened to me, I wanted to be able to stand before God and he would have to accept me because I had worked so hard for him. But if I look back on on that time in my life, I also know that there were a lot of ways that I was being a hypocrite. There were a lot of ways that, that I was ambivalent about doing the things that Jesus asked of me. There were a lot of sins that just seemed like they weren't affecting anyone else but me, and so they weren't that big of a deal. And you know what? During that time, I didn't feel attacked. It wasn't until I began to understand the grace of God, and it wasn't until I began teaching grace, that I really began struggling with, with periods of depression and, 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 and thoughts and, and doubts. See, it didn't begin when I was just kind of ambivalent about it. It began when I actually started believing it. And this is how the attack often sounds. Things are going bad in your life. He's punishing you. And you know you deserve it. You sure you want to tell your coworker that you go to church? She knows what you're really like. You're a hypocrite. Praying again? Why should he listen to you? You haven't read your Bible this week. Why would he even care? You really liked that, didn't you? That was really fun. And you say you're a Christian. 
Just do it one more time. And after you succumb to that sin again, he says, and after all that Jesus has done for you. You see, Satan's main tool in his fight against us Christians is to accuse us. Throughout scripture, he's called the father of lies, and, and he is that. He is a liar. He, he speaks lies into us. But when it comes to accusing us, he has plenty of truth on his side. Now, I should say something about the differences between conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of Satan. The Spirit convicts by showing us how much we're loved. The Spirit convicts by bringing us back to the cross. The Spirit convicts us of our sin by saying, you are loved. You are absolutely accepted because of what Jesus has done for you. Why do you keep choosing to live like he didn't do that for you? But Satan's accusation sounds like this. Because you keep doing that, because you are living like that, he's going to reject you. That's not the Spirit. The Spirit never, ever, ever convicts that way. The Spirit's arguments with our hearts always come from a place of truth, and truth tells us that we are accepted and loved because of the work of Jesus. How do we know that? How do we know that we're accepted and loved because of Jesus? Because that's the message of the Bible. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again, and that's what Paul tells us is, is how, we, how we fight. So we've looked at who we're fighting, and now Paul says this is how we fight. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. A few years ago, I preached on this verse, and, um, and I said a better translation would be the spanks of truth. And, uh, and I stand by that, because in the old King James Version, it says, and put on the girdle of truth. And the reason it says that is because a belt doesn't really get the concept. What Paul is talking about here when he talks about us having truth as a belt, what he's really saying is have truth as a foundational undergarment. That unless you have truth right there at the center of everything, unless you have truth holding everything else together, you're going to be all kinds of hanging out. And so Paul is saying you will not be able to fight without knowing and starting with the truth. And what is the foundational truth of Christianity? The Bible ends uh, with, with, with these words in Revelation 21. He who is seated on the throne, which is the resurrected Jesus, says, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Unless you believe what the Bible says about you and what Jesus has done for you, that you are a son. And when when he says you're a son, he's speaking to both male and female. Unless you believe that, you can't fight. Unless you believe that God, because of Jesus Christ, accepts you fully, no matter what, you can't fight. Because how we fight is with the gospel. That Jesus became what we are so that we could become who he is. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, by believing in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. Paul starts 
telling us about how we are to fight by saying we have to start with that truth. That truth has to hold everything else together. And then he ends by saying in Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul begins and ends this section on how to fight with the word of God. Now, in between there, between the belt and the sword, you have the breastplate and the shoes and the shield and the helmet, uh, which all point to our position in Christ. The breastplate of righteousness, uh, the shield of faith, etc. But Paul begins and ends with the word of God. He says the word of God has to be both our foundational undergarment and our sword. Now, what, what's a sword? What, is, what does a sword do in battle? It's an offensive weapon. All the other things described, all the other pieces of armor are defensive. They can help, you know, fend off an enemy's attack. The only piece of armor that can actually inflict pain on the enemy is the sword. All other pieces keep you from being defeated, but without the sword, you can never actually win. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, what did he do? He quoted scripture. He spoke aloud the word of God. When Satan attacks and he says to you, hey, God's withholding from you. You should just, you should just do that because God doesn't want you to be happy. God's a withholding God. You say to him, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When Satan attacks and says, because you did that again, God's going to reject you. You say Romans 8.1. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he says to you, a real Christian can, can stop that sin. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't sin like that anymore. You say to him, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When he tells you that you're worthless and and that you don't matter, you say Psalm 139.14, For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The way to confront the voice from hell is with the voice from heaven. Paul knew this. Paul knew that this is the only way that we can fight against this enemy. At the end of Paul's life, he wrote a letter to the the young pastor of this church in Ephesus, Timothy. He wrote to him, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We need to be in the word of God because through the word of God... This whole world was created, and through the word of God, he is recreating it. He is recreating us. A recent study of churches in America showed that of all the things a church can do, the most effective thing that a church can do to improve the spiritual growth and health of the church is to encourage and have people reading and studying and talking about God's word. In fact, compared to everything else, compared to missions trips and and acts of service and other programs and activities, uh, being in God's word actually was double effective. 
So how are you doing with that? Are you reading God's word? That's how you fight. So we know we're in a fight. We know who we're fighting. We know how to fight and with what. So how do we win? We've already won. We do not fight in order to win. We fight because in Christ we've already won. When Martin Luther wrote to his best friend Philip Melanchthon about that night in the castle, um, he described it as being a very suffocating feeling. And, And maybe some of you have been there. You know that feeling. He felt like it was a tremendous weight on him, like where he almost couldn't move. And then he, he said, like, I know this seems crazy, but I really thought I could see Satan in the room with me. And he said he was standing in the room kind of over me, and he had this huge scroll. And on this scroll were listed all of the sins that I had committed. And Satan was just going through them, reading them aloud one by one. And he said, when I could not take it any longer, I shouted, it's all true. All of it. And there are even some sins that are only known to God. And he said, but write this at the bottom of your scroll. The blood of Jesus, God's own son, has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And he said, with that, he grabbed the inkwell off the desk in the room and hurled it at Satan, who he said had vanished at this point, and it hit the wall and splattered. In Christ, we have already won. I don't care what's on your scroll. I don't care how long it is. I don't care how dark and dirty and shameful it is. Because of the blood of Jesus, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. When David committed horrible sins against God with adultery and murder, he says in Psalm 51, 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. If you have said yes to the Jesus question, you are clean and whiter than snow in God's eyes. You can go into any fight, any battle, knowing he has already won for you. And you may feel like you're defeated, but you're not. And Jesus knew that we would feel like that sometimes. In fact, one of the things he said in in John 16, 33, he said, Hey, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Paul ends this letter with these words. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. We pray because we realize we can't do it on our own. We pray because God's call on us is way beyond our potential. We pray because what God requires of us requires a tremendous amount of bravery. We pray because we want His will done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray because we're in a fight with one who wants to rob us of all hope. Paul begins and ends this letter to the Ephesians praying. 
And if you remember, he breaks out in prayer in the middle. So it seems fitting that we should end our study, our time in this book, in just prayer. Just praying. It says pray for all the Lord's people. Pray for those who you know are called to, to proclaim the gospel publicly. Pray for those who you know are hurting. Pray for yourself. We're going to do this um, by just taking some time now to silently pray. And, and this isn't something we normally do here, so I know it's a little bit awkward, maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And maybe if you're here and you're still kind of thinking through this whole Christianity thing and Jesus thing and you don't pray and you're thinking, oh, this, I mean, demons and now silent prayer, like, I get it. I get that it's weird. Um, but I'm just glad you're here. And I want you to know you don't have to pretend like you're praying. Um, but, but we're going to put some scriptures up on the, ver- on the, on the screens uh, that will remind us of, of who we are in Christ. And, and so maybe for you, if you don't feel like praying, you just want to sit there and just read them. But I want you to know, if you've never prayed, you can pray, and, and he'll hear you. Uh, and for those of us who have been praying for a long time, who have known Jesus for a long time, um, just take this time to just be still and pray. Let God's word um, speak to you. Uh, and then after a few minutes of silence, We'll end in prayer. So let's pray together.